You're listening to The Lid Is On with me, Conor Lennon. This is the third of our five bonus episodes of Seeking Peace, which are running every day this week. In the series, Milan Vivere from Georgetown University's Institute for Women, Peace and Security explores the crucial role that women play in bringing lasting peace to communities, whether through grassroots activism, peace negotiations, journalism, politics or as uniformed peacekeepers. On today's episode, we'll hear from Mireille Laurier-Minzi, the Senior Gender Advisor for the UN Stabilisation Mission in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Beatrice Epey, a politician and educator from the Central African Republic, and Yeta Shara, the Director of the Balkan Investigative Reporting Network in Kosovo. The interviews in this podcast reflect the views of the participants, and the United Nations does not necessarily endorse nor support the language used or views expressed. From Georgetown University, this is Seeking Peace. I'm Milan Verveer. Welcome back for season three of the show. This season, we are collaborating with the United Nations Department of Peace Operations and Our Secure Future to explore the important role women play in bringing lasting peace to communities, whether through grassroots activism, peace negotiations, journalism, politics, or as uniformed peacekeepers. It matters for women to be part of politics for several reasons. I think the first one, I would say it's because it's a human right. So every individual, man or woman, has the right to participate in the public affairs of his or her country. And uh, for now, we see that uh, women remain largely uh, marginalized from political participation, from participation in peace and security processes, including mediation and negotiation processes. That was Mireille Laurier Afa Amenzi, the Senior Gender Advisor for the United Nations Organization Stabilization Mission in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Mireille, who is originally from Cameroon, studied international law and then worked in the Gambia and South Africa. In 2014, she found herself in New York as a specialist on peace and security issues at UN Women. I think very early, I realized the importance of uh, continuing to promote human rights, continuing to uh, advocate for women's human rights, including especially uh, women's participation and leadership. Women already constitute half of the population in almost all countries around the world, and they have a voice, they have a role to play in building uh, peaceful societies, in contributing to development in their communities. A women's human rights advocate, I'm very interested in making sure that, yes, policies, resolutions, conventions that are developed are actually implemented and mean something beyond the policy or the paper they are printed on. I was very interested in uh, moving to Congo to see how, from this policy perspective, now work on the implementation of these policies, uh, these principles that are more or less developed at uh, UN headquarters. So that's what brought me to Congo. An important aspect of Murray's job as senior gender advisor is ensuring the meaningful participation of women in politics. And I think if we want to uh, 
push for more involvement of women into politics. It's also for them to then count, influence peace and security processes. But looking at political participation per se, I will say that women are unique because, uh, and it's the same that we observe in uh, peace and security, when women are involved, they often tend to bring issues that are not generally discussed among uh, male politicians. In our last episode, we explored the roles that women play in peace negotiations and the implementation of peace processes. Today, we're examining the role women play in transforming politics. As someone whose role it is to ensure women's participation in politics, Murray explained many barriers still exist. The barriers are also uh, many. I, I think if we look generally, and these are barriers that are, I would say, uh, spread around the world, uh, there are issues of culture, there are issues of religion, there are issues of uh, like the social environment, the family environment that really prevents women from engaging in public life, engaging in politics. There are still some uh, hesitation, uh, reservation, including from women themselves to get involved into politics. And I think this is also related to all the, the risks, the challenges that they see are associated uh, with uh, being a politician, a female politician. I already talked about the, the family limitations or challenges, but also the violence that some women are exposed to just because they want to get involved into public service, including into politics. Threats of violence, sadly, are not uncommon occurrences for women involved in politics. Even still, brave women persevere every day. We wanted to hear from a woman who has been instrumental in politics in her region. So we spoke to Beatrice Epaye. Beatrice is from Central Africa Republic and is a politician and educator. She advocates for better governance and particularly for women's rights, including their participation in politics. After the 2013 coup in the Central African Republic, she was re-elected in her constituency and tapped to serve in the transitional government under the leadership of another woman, Catherine Zamba Panza, who served as interim president. Beatrice was re-elected in 2020. She leveraged her position in the Forum of Women Parliamentarians to reform the country's electoral code and create a 35% representation quota. Beatrice sat down for a conversation at the UN Peacekeeping Missions radio station, Guira FM, in the capital of Car, Bangui. The interview took place in French and has been translated for our audience. The conversation began by discussing how Beatrice got involved in politics in the first place. Effectivement, je suis rentrée en politique d'une manière inattendue. I entered politics in an unexpected way. I entered in 2003 in the National Transitional Council, which is a legislative body that replaced the National Assembly after a coup d'état. The National Transitional Council was composed of several entities. I represented civil society, and there you go. I stayed and realized that representing the nation at this level, making legislative decisions by passing good laws, was interesting for the people. So that appealed to me, and I stayed until now. 
Although Beatrice represents a first in many ways, she gives a lot of credit to the women who inspired her and came before her. I've seen women fight for other women, to get women to have voting rights. And there is one who charmed me. It is a woman who is not from our continent. It was Simone Weil. Simone Weil, a great politician who suffered in her youth, who obtained a great law for women, the right of abortion. At that time, it was difficult. She suffered from it but did not give up. She went so far as to be president of the European Parliament, minister of state, then major positions. And she did it all with a deep human spirit. Getting involved in politics in Carr wasn't easy, nor was it something she did alone. In her tenure as a politician, Beatrice created the Forum of Women Parliamentarians to ensure better women's participation and to vote in gender-sensitive laws. I can't do it alone. In our country, there are very few women who are in parliament. Currently, we are 17 women out of 140 deputies. It's very little. But to be able to do something, even in our context of division, because there are a lot of things that divide us, we said to ourselves, and I proposed to my colleagues, that we ignore our ethnic, regionalist, and political differences that we meet again as Central African women parliamentarians in order to be at the disposal of our people and to do so in such a way that many other women join us in parliament. That is what we did by setting up the Forum of Women Parliamentarians and we continue to do so. For Beatrice, creating this forum was important and she sees the involvement of women in politics not only as important, but essential for involving women in politics. A woman listens. A woman, when she joins men around a table, it brings calm and the impact of a woman's position, which is often an impact of softness, prevents a lot of things. It brings peace and brings about reconciliation. That is why women are needed in politics. We need women to come and dilute that which is not working and to bring people back to the essential, which is peace and reconciliation. Sadly, Beatrice has faced many threats of violence as a trailblazing woman in politics. As someone who has dealt with these threats firsthand, she has thought a lot about how to combat this pervasive problem. We would like laws to be more gender sensitive. We clash a bit with our colleagues who may not understand much about why we fight for laws to benefit women more. And as a result, we sometimes experience psychological and physical violence or abusive language. But you know, we managed to push these boundaries. Those that created our political parties are often the people in political offices. And there are very few women. 
So we tried to make the political parties aware of this during the last elections. Women parliamentarians went to some of the political parties mainly to ask them to include more women, not just use women for their campaigns. Well, it didn't do much, but we still believe in it. In response to the widespread issues of violence against women, the UN mission in CAR, MINUSCA, supported the creation of a 24-hour hotline to track and report incidents of violence. Beatrice recalls a time she had to use it. I called this number in December 2020, when I was on an election campaign in my electoral district, when I was assaulted. It was a reflex that I had because we were given this number at the Forum of Women Parliamentarians to call in case we were confronted with a dangerous situation. And it worked. I had someone on the phone who even heard gunfire sounds at my house and asked me where Minuska was in relation to my house. And indeed, Minuska arrived, the people left, and I was saved. Beatrice isn't just vocal about the violence women politicians face, but also the rampant sexual violence across her country. These are things that are always under silence. What's wrong has to be said out loud. We are in a moment, in a period of conflict, and we know that these things exist. We come across 13, 14-year-old children, 12-year-old children with babies in their hands. You see women who lose their dignity Because of all this, we have to talk about it and draw attention so that together we can find tools to try to solve these problems, which are crucial problems in a country. Women should not be raped. Women should not be abused. To put an end to all this, I got up to talk about it. We asked Murray about the impact of having more women like Beatrice in Parliament. I think having more women in a parliamentary hall or in like that uh, political space, I said, tend to, to shift the dynamics among the elected uh, officials. I think the discussion cover more aspects, more issues than what uh, will ordinarily be covered. And I think having more women in Parliament show to other women that it's possible. It's doable. Women can be elected. Women can sit in Parliament. And women can work in improving other people's lives, including other women's lives. Beatrice and our next guest are both working on transforming women's participation in politics, but they work toward this goal through different avenues. While Beatrice herself is a politician, Yetta, our next guest, is transforming politics through the field of journalism. Yetta is the director of the Balkan Investigative Reporting Network in Kosovo. As a journalist there, she uses her platform on television to hold politicians in Kosovo, who are often men, to account for their actions with the goal of addressing issues of corruption 
in Kosovo politics. Yetta first got involved in journalism in 1998, around the time of the outbreak of the conflict in Kosovo. The ensuing violence led to thousands of civilian deaths and displacement of the population. NATO's aerial campaign in early 1999 led to the withdrawal of Serbian forces and deployment of international forces to stabilize and bring peace to the region. The BBC arrived in Kosovo looking for English speakers to assist their reporting. Yetta still remembers it clearly. My first day at work was 5th of March, 98. When we reached Prekaz, I could see there were lots of troops. We passed through checkpoints of uh, Serbian police that were tattooed, that were sweaty, that were coming down very angry from some, some, let's say, operation they were doing. So we had to pass them first. Then eventually we reached the Ashari compound, which was formed of several homes inside a village. Homes were burning. We could hear only a few animals left. We heard no voices of people. By that time, most of them had been dead. We couldn't see the bodies then. But the cameraman went ahead, filmed the attack. Since that footage has become a historical footage because it's the only filming of the Serbian paramilitaries and, and army operation on the Ashari compound. And as he was filming, he's noticed by the troops and they shoot at his direction. The cameraman starts running away comes back a few meters away from the front line where me and the correspondent were, were waiting for him. Me acting as a translator, local producer, fixer. He comes back and says, uh, there was something that I thought hit me. Can you just check if I'm bleeding? We, we are checking him out. We see he's not bleeding, but he removes the top of his shirt and there's a big violet bruise in his stomach. As we're trying to see if there's any entry wound of anything, we discover that he had had a belt bag and in that bag in front of his stomach, there was a hole. He opens it up. He had a bag of money, Deutschmarks at the time, cigarette and mobile phone. The bullet had gone through the packet of money, had gone through the packet of cigarettes and ended up in the Nokia mobile phone battery. Luckily, in 98, the mobile phones were very thick, so it had stopped the bullet. If we had some modern phone today, he'd probably be dead. Since then, we've covered many stories that I think mobilized the public opinion to make the international intervention that happened for Kosovars, and for which I think uh, I owe my life to. I, I really think if there wasn't for NATO bombing, we wouldn't be sitting here. I wouldn't be here, uh, whether I'd be alive or not, uh, I'm not sure, but certainly this would have been an ethnically cleansed country. Majority of the population would not exist unless there was the intervention that saved us. The head of communications at the United Nations mission in Kosovo, Sanam Dolashahi, sat down with Yeta Jara. Sanam asked Yeta about her journey as a journalist and how her work impacted politics in Kosovo. So what was it like to cover a conflict that was directly impacting your own life? How did you compartmentalize or not that experience? I suddenly almost dropped out of university because I felt useless going to university while the countryside was burning. 
literally. And when journalism appeared as an opportunity, I felt suddenly my calling that there is some real purpose to my life, that there is some sort something useful I could be doing. And what was that something useful? That the world understands what was going on in Kosovo, that our story reaches international audiences. So your experience of conflict very much drove you to stay in journalism, am I right? Absolutely. So let us talk a bit more about this experience. And in other interviews, you have talked about how sexist mentalities that women can't hold men and authorities figures to account uh, have actually worked to your advantage. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yes, I saw this from early on. I was 19 when I had to go past these army checkpoints to get to where the war and conflict was happening, where houses were burning and uh, refugees were having to find shelter. So in order to reach these pictures at the time, I remember that we had to pass through checkpoints in which the armed men and the violent men through which I had to pass through to get to these photos, to get to these pictures, and to get to these stories, were simply not taking me too seriously. And that worked to my advantage because very rarely Albanians could go through Serbian checkpoints. But the fact that I was a woman, I was seen as unharming, undangerous, and even potentially not recruitable by Kosovo Liberation Army. So as I just told, told them, look, I'm a student translating for these people. I'm harmless. I've got no agenda. And Balkan men fall for this. They actually believe women are, are stupid. Uh, and you could, by counting on the fact that they think you're stupid, you could act stupid and get the story. As a journalist, uh, you have faced threats and experienced violence. And violence against women in politics remains a major challenge around the world. How could we make sure that every single journalist and politician has the possibility to do their work without these threats? And maybe you can talk from your own experience. You predict violence as, as a journalist, <laughs> not just as a woman, but as a journalist, you predict violence around you. So speaking out and speaking up is one example that has taught me that once you're threatened, it's, it's like a battered woman. You're going to con continue to be battered as long you, as you keep the conflict and the beating at home. As soon as you report it, and your neighbors know, and the family knows, and the neighborhood knows, and the world knows, then is when the cost becomes far larger for the person who's causing the violence. And that's why I would always opt against this mentality that, that uh, we have, as women especially in the Balkans, when you think uh, you're just too modest to want to make yourself the center of the story or to, to want to speak out. You're taught to be quiet, to serve others. You're never taught that society serves you or needs to make you comfortable. As a woman in the Balkans, and you are taught, and I think elsewhere too, that you serve the society. And I think that has not helped our cause. What role does the Kosovo media play in peace building, in your opinion? Before we started doing this program where we would ask tough questions to politicians, 
politicians were being allowed long speeches, were being allowed to not answer the question. And we suddenly brought it back to persistence and stubbornness into answering the question. It used to be that you ask them about apples, they respond about pears. And we made that intolerable. We made it look stupid. And what happened is that I repeated back the question. I repeated back the question over and over until I'd get an answer. But uh, paving the way was an issue in the beginning. Uh, what happened was the head of public TV was being asked to, to put the show off air because I'm so rude, I'm so aggressive. Today, I'm, I just think it's, it's important to note that just because at the time they say you're rude and aggressive, just hold on to it and later it changed to you're tough, you're credible, you're good at your job. So as long as you stick it out, the future is, is, is going to be better. Do you think women have a unique role to play in holding power to account? Absolutely, because women grow up being oppressed. They're told that power is not with them. So whatever, when you ask me whether women have a role to hold the power to account, is they've been doing it since they were little girls. Because there's always somebody telling them how to lead their life, what is expected of them, who are they expected to marry, Women's experience with power comes from its very young DNA age. It's passed from a mother to, to, to a daughter and a grandmother. And largely all the conversations of you growing up are about how someone else is more powerful and how you manage that other power. And that other power is always the men. Now let's talk about women in politics. Despite gains in women's political participation in Kosovo, major barriers still exist. One specific issue is that women have difficulties navigating often informal male-dominated selection processes for candidates inside the different parties. What could be done to tackle this, in your opinion? This remains a problem because uh, politics, like many other professions, Uh, is a profession where you need to mingle in cafes, in raki places, in chaitores, the tea houses, after hours, when you're expected to be at home. Women don't go and mingle and lobby and drink and network. They simply don't have that luxury because they need to fulfill the role somebody at home is waiting for them to care Children, elderly, they all rely on our domesticity of women holding the state. So it's usually a man's career that will prioritize in most families I know in Kosovo. So clearly, this is an obstacle to women getting more engaged, not just in politics. In many posts, especially when you, after hours, uh, work is expected. How can this be tackled? In Kosovo, we, we have done some progress in making it obligatory as, uh, with a quota in parliament. And after 20 years of quota applying, we finally, in this last parliament, last election, have more women 
than the quotas demand. So this is just to prove that quotas work. Yeta's television program, Life in Kosovo, airs on Kosovo television. Marie reflected a bit about Yeta's thoughts on quotas and the importance of women's participation in politics. She was particularly interested in the issue of accountability. I think people say knowledge is power, right? So knowledge is power. I also think accountability is power, power to the people. Because uh, especially if we talk about elected leaders, elected leaders uh, need to, uh, in French, they say rendre compte. Like they need to be held accountable of what uh, they are doing because it also involves public finance and uh, uh, national resources. So having people like uh, Yeta, journalists like Yeta, uh, being able to ask uh, tough questions to politicians, elected leaders, uh, allow the general public to be informed of what is going on, on why they probably continue to face particular issues and why things are not changing. Because I think when uh, men or women are elected into office, it's also to improve people's lives. And it's the role of the, the journalists, of the public opinion, to hold uh, these leaders accountable. And then it means also to share more information, share knowledge with the general public. Accountability is power. By holding politicians accountable, everyone in a society is able to make more informed decisions. We need more equal women's participation in politics and uh, we need more inclusive politics in general because uh, we talk about women, but it, it's not like a monolithic block. We have women living with uh, disability. We have women uh, from indigenous backgrounds. Uh, we have women from rural and uh, urban areas. We have so many different types of women. But I think the more inclusive like politics, parliaments, processes are, the more democratic, the, the more effective they also are in addressing a, a broad range of issues that people face. So my hope is really like more equal participation, more inclusive politics and uh, more, I would say, yes, uh, respectful and peaceful engagements that serve people, that improve people's lives. That was the third episode of Seeking Peace. We'll be back with another episode tomorrow, but if you want to hear the full back catalogue, you can find it at seekingpeacepodcast.com.